Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church podcast, where we share weekly sermons from our church services. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. We are a multi-generational family church located in the heart of Little Rock. Calvary's mission is to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples. Whether you've long been part of our church family or are tuning in for the first time, we hope our podcast provides the same kind of welcoming space you'd find here on Sunday mornings. Most of all, we hope this space helps you engage God's Word and grow in your faith. Well, as we look at our Bible study this morning, I want you to turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, starting in verse 13, we're going to read an interesting story. It's often in Bibles, it's labeled the clearing of the temple because Jesus was clearing out some people and some things that were not supposed to be there. Other Bibles label it the cleansing of the temple. And that is also an accurate term because the temple was needing to be purified as it was being desecrated. And so these terms are kind of the terms that are typical of this story. What we're, what we're going to see here and who we're going to meet in this story is a Jesus that we might say is not your normal Jesus. It's not the gentle Jesus that we're used to. It's not the uh, cool, calm, and collected Jesus that we often read about and think about and describe. It's not the patient Jesus. Instead, what we're going to see is a very angry Jesus who very boldly, very brashly, very loudly, very aggressively takes charge of the temple courtyards. And so it might seem that this Jesus that we're going to read about in this story is out of character. And I think what that just says to us, if we feel that way, is that maybe we don't fully and correctly understand his true character. Because this is absolutely who he is. One of the backstories that we need to understand before we read this story is kind of how we got here. As we read through the Gospels, we see that this story, I think, represents a culmination of a lifetime of dealing with the corruption of the religious establishment at the temple. And It's a lifetime of Jesus dealing with religious leadership that was corrupt and had an antagonistic relationship with Jesus. Ever since Jesus started his earthly ministry, we see that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were antagonistic towards him and opposed him greatly. They did not believe that he was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, They certainly did not believe that he was the son of God. And they did everything they could to try to discredit people or discredit Jesus to the people. And Jesus did not take it sitting down, did he? As you read through the gospels, you see Jesus responding and calling out these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, these corrupt religious leaders calling them out for their hypocrisy, calling them things like blind guides or whitewashed tombs or you brood of vipers. 
That term means he's calling them a family of poisonous snakes. Not a very endearing term, is it? And so Jesus constantly called them out for their hypocrisy. And so you need to understand that that's been part of this journey, this, this, the backstory, if you will, that I think sets the stage for the story that we're going to read today. One thing you need to know is that all four Gospels describe this event, the clearing of the temple or the cleansing of the temple, all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, I believe they're talking about the one same event. Some will try to say that Perhaps there were two cleansings of the temple. The reason for that is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke always put it at the end of Jesus' life, the last Passover that he attended just a few days before he was crucified on the cross. John instead puts it at the beginning of his gospel. But I believe the the logical explanation for that is that John, we need to remember, was the least chronological of all of the gospel writers and was more thematically organized. So I really do not believe these were two separate events, but one event being described by all four gospel writers that happened just a few days before Jesus died on the cross. In fact, I would argue that this single event, more than anything that Jesus said or did, got him killed. And so let's look at this story and let's kind of understand it in this context, the context with which it was given. Verse 13 of John chapter 2, it says, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So this is the Passover. Remember, this is one of the the seven festivals that the Jews celebrated every year. And in fact, it was the largest and the most important festival. And it would have been the the, the festival that uh, had huge crowds. We know that Jesus actually attended at least three Passover festivals. Some would argue four. And where do we get that? We get it from John's Gospel. He tells us about the different Passovers, and that helps us to understand that Jesus' public ministry lasted around three to four years based on the Passovers that John tells us he attended. Again, we think this was the last one. It says, then Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was in the high country, kind of the Judean mountains, if you will. So you always went up to Jerusalem, and he did. And it says then in verse 14, in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Now, first of all, we need to understand the Passover goes all the way back, of course, to the Exodus, when God set his people free from Egyptian bondage. You remember we studied Exodus and the Passover was actually the very last plague that God sent upon the Egyptians, the plague that forced Pharaoh, the stubborn King Pharaoh of Egypt, to to change his no to go when he let the Israelites go free from their bondage of 400 years. And so the Passover was when, if you remember the story, they were to kill an unblemished lamb, 
spread the blood over the door frames of their homes, and then enter the home, uh, get dressed, get ready, because they were going to be leaving soon, God said. They were to eat the, the lamb, a roasted lamb over fire. Didn't have time for uh, the bread to rise, the yeast rise, so they had unleavened bread as part of that meal. And then that night, remember, God sent an angel of death throughout all of Egypt. And if it saw the blood of the lamb spread over the door frames of the homes, nothing would happen. No, nothing ill would happen to that family, which was all of the Jewish families. But all of the Egyptian families that did not have the blood of the lamb spread over the door frames of their homes, the firstborn in each of those families died. And that's what caused Pharaoh to change his no to go. That's the Passover. And ever since that happened, the Jews were called to celebrate it with an annual festival to remember what God had done for them, how he had rescued them from bondage. And so that's what we're, we're celebrating here. And in the Passover celebrations, people would always bring animals for the sacrificial offerings. And we have four different animals listed, cattle, sheep, uh, doves, and uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke will add pigeons. So these were the animals that were part of the Passover celebration, the sacrificial animals. And they also had to exchange money for the temple offering. And so they would have to have money changers for this event. So they were all, this was part of every single Passover celebration. However, I think perhaps this one was unique and different. There is some evidence that around the year AD 30, which would have been in line with this time frame, that the high priest Caiaphas working with the Sadducees who were in charge of the temple, actually made a decision that would move all of this marketplace and business ventures, all of the things that had to go, the selling of the animals, the money exchange, that always had happened at the Mount of Olives. East of the temple, on the other side of the Kidron Valley, that's where the market was set up for these necessary things. But around AD 30, there is some evidence that Caiaphas, for the first time, allowed them to set up shop in the temple courtyards for convenience sake. And so it's possible, I think even probable, that when Jesus showed up on this, his last Passover, and he walks into the temple courtyards, he sees something that he had never seen before. And they were absolutely desecrating the temple, turning it into a marketplace. And this is why he was so incensed, so enraged, that leads really to outrage. A righteous anger. And so what did he do? Verse 15, he made a whip out of cords. Remember, Jesus was a first century carpenter. First century carpenters were very ingenious people. They often had to make their own tools in order to fix something unique. And so this would be no problem for someone like Jesus. He finds a rope and then he makes it into a whip. And so it says he made a whip out of cords 
And then he began to drive, or he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. And he scattered the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. So I want us to imagine that scene. Just think about it for just a minute in your mind's eye. See Jesus standing with that whip, cracking that whip. Hear that whip as he's cracking it and uh, beginning to travel through the temple courtyards. I want you to hear the crashing of the tables as Jesus turns their tables over. Hear the coins scattering and clinging on the stone floor of the temple courtyards. Hear the, the animals, see the feathers flying. Hear the cows lowing or mooing, the, the sheep in a panic, bleeding as they're being forced out from this seemingly crazy man with a whip driving them, literally driving them. See the money changers and the animal vendors and the animal inspectors scrambling to pick up their goods and figure out what was going on and, and get out of the way. It had to be quite a scene, quite an unexpected scene. The disciples noted how zealous Jesus was in this moment how extreme this situation was with verse 17. It says, his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's Psalm 69.9. And if you look at the rest of that Psalm, it talks about how when God is insulted, his people should react as being insulted too. They should respond to that. Jesus was responding to his father's house being desecrated and turned into a marketplace. It infuriated him. And so there was a zealous Jesus that we see. Maybe the Jesus we're not used to seeing, but it's certainly him nonetheless. Verse 18 says, the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? And that's a fair question. Because what Jesus was doing was he was taking authority over the most important institution, the most important religious icon, the most important religious place in all of Judaism. It was the temple. And the temple had been uh, entrusted to the Sadducees and the priests. They were in charge of the temple. They were the only ones who could tell people what to do or not to do. They ran everything, and yet Jesus has now usurped their authority. And again, I believe this is the reason this event was what really ultimately led to Jesus' crucifixion, is the fact that now not only were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who always hated Jesus, not only were they united against him, but now the Sadducees. These were the wealthy, aristocratic, priestly families that ran the temple. Now they are infuriated, furious with Jesus for what he's done. Now they are aligning against him in solidarity. And then, of course, the priests would have seen this as a blasphemous act. They were united against Jesus. And even some of the political groups, like the Herodians, 
These were wealthy families in the Jerusalem area that were working with the Romans. The Romans were allowing them to have empowerment so they could keep control of the Jews. Now the Herodians were seeing that Jesus was a true threat to their religious and political establishment. So all of these groups, I think, are uniting against Jesus and saying, man, Jesus has got to go. It's an issue of authority. And so they asked Jesus the question, what, can, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do what you just did, to take charge of the temple? In verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. Now that seemed very absurd to the religious teachers who were asking the question. Jesus, of course, was speaking metaphorically, figuratively. Really, he was also talking about something that was about to happen literally, but they didn't understand. He said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Herod had started this building project and it was ongoing, this remodel. And he says, you're, gonna, you're going to to raise it in three days, they asked him. But of course, the temple he had spoken of was his body. And then after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recall what he said, and then they believe the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. They're seeing the prophetic words that are coming from all of this. After the fact, Jesus referring to his resurrection. So remember, this is all happening, I believe, in a very short amount of days. We think this would have been on Tuesday of the last Passover of Jesus' week of life on this earth. The last Passover week had been on Tuesday where he cleansed the temple. It had been on Thursday that he celebrated the Lord's Supper with his disciples in the upper room. It would have been on Friday of that week that he actually died on the cross. And then a few days later, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, three days later, he is resurrected from the dead. And he's talking about that all in the same venue, the same moment. And they believe the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken after they saw all of this come to fruition. Well, what do we do with this? What are some of the life lessons, some things we ought to be thinking about that relate to this whole story, the cleansing of the temple? Well, one thing I think we see is that God desires authentic and passionate worshipers from all people everywhere. And here's why I say that. If you look at the temple courtyards, and I have a picture here that we can look at, these courtyards are kind of showing you kind of the, the different rooms, the different, uh, the, the different buildings, and the different courtyards that actually made up the temple. Now, the building itself is the temple. It was modeled after the tabernacle. It's really a relatively small building. And just like the tabernacle, it had two inner rooms, inner sanctuaries. That's what that Jewish word heichel means, inner sanctuaries. And if you remember, like in the tabernacle, the back room was known as the Holy of Holies. And only one person could go into the Holy of Holies and only one time a year. 
And that was the Jewish high priest on the Day of Atonement. Then the, the front room, the little bit larger room, was known as the holy place. And that room, only ruling priests could go into to that room. And, it, and they were going into it to take care of three pieces of furniture that were in there. You had the lampstand, you had the altar of incense, and then the table with the showbread. And they would go in there to make sure there was plenty of oil for the lamps, that they had plenty of incense to burn and the coals to burn the incense and that the, the bread was in its proper place and properly cared for. Those were the ruling priests that could actually go into the temple itself. Right outside of the temple was called what this shows is the, the Jewish term misbeach, and that is the, the altar that's right outside. That's where all of the sacrificial offerings, all of these cattle and sheep and doves, that's where they would be sacrificed on that external altar right outside of the temple in the courtyard of priests because the priest would be out there actually offering the sacrifices. Next to that, you have the court of Israel. Some, some call it the court of men. And that's where Jewish men could line up close to the priest and watch the sacrifices as they took place. And then you move from that, you see that larger courtyard uh, towards the east known as the court of women. And this is where only men and women, Jewish men and women could go. And uh, this is where uh, they had, if you remember the story of the, the widow who offered her offering and Jesus called attention to the disciples and said, this woman gave more than any of the others. Those offering baskets would have been part of the court of women. That's where it would have been placed. There was a, a, a sign on the gate of the court of women notifying Gentiles that if they went through that gate, they would do so at their own death. They would be killed. But there was a place for the Gentiles. Look at the outer courtyard, this largest area that you see with uh, all of the marble porticos and the columns all around it. That court is known as the court of Gentiles. Where did Caiaphas and the Sadducees allow the money changers and the animal vendors and the merchants to set up shop. It was the court of Gentiles. After all, it's just Gentiles. Who cares about the Gentiles, they would have said. Well, Jesus cares about the Gentiles. And thank God he does. Most of us are here are included in that group. We're so thankful that Jesus stood up for us and our rights to worship the one true God, to be able to come and pray to him. You know, if we read this story, we look at it in uh, Mark's version. Mark eleven seventeen tells us one of the things Jesus said. He says, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? Important term, for all nations. All people everywhere have a right to know and love and worship God, to pray to the one true God. And he was standing up for the nations, for the Gentiles, who were being prejudiced against by this action. And so we need to remember God desires authentic and passionate worshipers from all people everywhere. This is really the heart of, of the mission movement that we share, part of our calling 
to go to all people everywhere and share the good news of Jesus and invite them into our faith family by their own decision to, to receive forgiveness from their sins and put their faith in Jesus and then receive life in him and through him, life abundant and eternal. That's the gospel. And what, what empowers our mission call and our mission purpose is this ideology that God has a heart for all people everywhere. I love how we're reading in Revelation. Around the throne of God, we're told, will be every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every language, every people group will be represented. God loves and desires authentic and passionate worshipers from all people everywhere. That's his heart. It should be our heart too. A second key point from this story is it teaches us that there are situations that should prompt righteous anger. There are situations that should prompt righteous anger. Now we have to distinguish between righteous anger and fleshly anger. Two very different things. Paul even talks about the fleshly anger in Galatians chapter 5, you might remember where he contrasts the fruit of the Spirit with the deeds of the flesh. And he gives us lists of both. He describes both the fruit of the Spirit and the deeds of the flesh. While he's describing the deeds of the flesh, one of the categories is fits of rage. And it's not righteous anger that he's talking about. And so we have to understand what this is and what it's not. You know, when we lose our tempers with friends or spouses or children or grandchildren, this is probably not righteous anger. Road rage is not righteous anger. We need to understand the difference, but there is such a thing as righteous anger. And in this context, Jesus' righteous anger was against the injustice that was taking place. It was against the prejudice that was taking place. It was against the exploitation of the poor that was taking place. It was against the, the greed that was taking place, and so on and so forth. You know, it's kind of interesting. These money changers were exchanging money. They had to do that, especially for foreign people that were coming to the festival. They had to exchange their foreign money for the, the coinage that would be acceptable for the temple tax. And they did it, of course, charging an exorbitant price for that exchange, ripping off the people. The people would bring their animals to, some of them would bring their own animals. They had to have those animals inspected and somehow, some way, none of the animals passed the inspection. But you could trade them in for a price. And then lo and behold, later you would see somebody else with your animal that now was the unblemished one, that they were now, they had made the exchange. It was just a racket. That's why when we read about this story in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one of the things Jesus says is that you have turned my father's house not just into a marketplace, but into a den of robbers, a den of thieves. They were exploiting the poor taking advantage of the foreigners. Very dishonest business dealings. 
And so righteous anger includes these things, injustice, prejudice, exploitation of the poor, hypocrisy from religious leadership, greed, and so forth. But we also know as we live in this fallen, broken world that's under the control of the evil one that we could add other things to the list. Other things that God would add to the list that merit righteous anger. And even things that are not specifically mentioned in, in, in Scripture, we have principles that help us see that these things require a response of righteous anger. Things like domestic violence, child abuse, human trafficking, pornography, world hunger, the persecuted church, terrorism. And we could go on and on. And so we need to remember there are situations that prompt God's righteous anger, and if it prompts God's righteous anger, we should be angry about these things too and do everything we can to eliminate them in our fallen, broken, evil world where the Holy, the, the, the Holy Spirit is in battle with the evil one, Satan. We're in a battle, and we need to win this battle through the power of God. And finally, I think a third point is God's new temple for the Holy Spirit is the physical body of a believer. And if that's true, we need to ask ourselves, are we keeping our temple pure? Remember Jesus, when he was answering the question uh, about his authority, said, destroy this temple. He was referring to his physical body, calling it a temple. Later, Paul in 1 Corinthians tells us that there is a spiritual temple that God has now, he's basically replaced the, the temple in Jerusalem with a spiritual temple where he has put his spiritual, his Holy Spirit within the human body, our bodies, if we're believers. And therefore, our bodies are now housing where the temple for God's Holy Spirit. And so what we do with our bodies matters. That's why we read in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, listen to what he says. He says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And then look at this, verse 19, he says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God, and you're not your own? And so essence what we do with our bodies matters a lot to God. We can desecrate God's temple by sexual immorality and other things. And we need to be aware of that. God's new temple, if you're a believer, your, his new temple is your body where the Holy Spirit resides. And therefore, what we do with our bodies matters a lot to God. And our bodies need to remain pure and that's an important concept that I think connects with this story. Interestingly, at the end of verse 19, he says, you're not your own, you were bought with a price. And the price he's talking about, of course, is our Lord and Savior's broken body and shed blood in our behalf. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. 
If you don't already have a church home, we invite you to join us in person each Sunday morning. Our contemporary worship service is at 9 a.m. and our traditional service is at 11.15. For more information, be sure to check out our website, cbclr.org.